sometimes I call it my favorite play that I often forget about. Welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And I'm feeling good today. It's been sunny for like a whole week where I'm at. No, so it's so nice here. It's been super good. I've been able to go on walks again. What? It's, it's been super good. But I'm also excited because we are talking about a playwright that we haven't done before, right? I, I believe that is correct. We, it has taken us this long to get to Jeffrey Sweet, which yeah. I, I don't think for many people seems that crazy. For me, it's insane because right. Jeffrey Sweet is, I mean, it, unequivocally, without a doubt, in the top echelon of playwrights in my mind. If people ask me who my favorite playwright is, and recently I've had some occasion to actually think about that and try to sit down and come up with a real answer, I mentioned people like Paula Vogel, I mentioned people like Lynn Nottage, and Jeffrey Sweet. Uh, yeah. In my top three, it'd be hard when you get to that very top level to name a favorite, but man, I love Jeffrey Sweet. Yeah, and we actually have a little bit of history with Jeffrey right. Sweet, right? Yeah, we did another one of his plays than the one we're talking about today. That's uh, right. Yes, you... I directed Jackson yeah. and a couple of our other friends in a 10-minute play of Jeffrey Sweet's called Cover. If you've never read Cover, it's among the best 10-minute plays out there. It's so, so, so sharp, so quick, so good. Uh, mm-hmm. We did I, I what I was pretty proud of, a pretty lovely production, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I really tuned my too. own horn, I directed it. <laughs> I thought it turned out pretty darn good. When we did yeah, it. <laughs> it was definitely memorable and, and really good deep characters, which will carry over into this play. We are doing Jeffrey Sweet's play Bluff. Yes, uh, I knew that we were going to do a Jeffrey Sweet play at some point here very shortly, and it took me a long time to settle on which one. He has an anthology out, which is an incredible anthology of some really, really good plays, and there are lots of interesting plays in it. Um, the Value of Names and Porch are among his better known of that group. One of my favorite plays ever written is a play of his called, called American Enterprise, which is in this anthology. I didn't decide to do any of those. I, I, I landed on Bluff, and I think that Jackson agrees with me because it has such a unique view of the relationship between character and actor. And I think that that will provide us some substantive conversation that's different than some of these other plays that we've done. It's similarly a more recently written play, although not as recently as The Wolves or Circle Mirror Transformation. Um, but it's in that same vein of theater. But this one I think will have uh, – we'll be able to talk – So I'm just so fascinated by the way he uses actors in Bluff in a way that's just marvels me. I love it. <laughs> yeah, in- innovative, certainly, yeah. <laughs> th- Bluff is like I- – I, sometimes I call it my favorite play that I often forget about. Like yeah. I don't, I don't. When I think about what my favorite plays are, I don't often say bluff. It just doesn't ever much occur to me. But when I remember bluff, I'm like, oh yeah, I freaking love this play. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, man. I I will direct bluff in uh, within the next part stage of my directing career. I'm going to do bluff. So before we hop into talking more about bluff, we do want to remind everybody to go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That is the location of our Patreon and it's where you can become a patron of this podcast. What we do is very fun for us. It's a labor of love. We enjoy what we do, but it is not free to do what we do. There are hosting fees. There are countless hours that Jackson and I spend on it, as well as 
does things like needing to purchase the plays that aren't available at our local library, et cetera, et cetera. It costs money for us to do. And while we love it, we are reaching out to our NoScript community to help us with the monetary cost of producing. If you go to our Patreon, you can see we have several tiers. The lowest of them is just $1 a month. We hope that you feel like you're getting $1 a month of return on your time investment with us. We certainly feel like you are. There's some higher tiers as well. Each of the tiers offers various things that you can access. Uh, This is currently the month of April, so you are starting to see patron-only posts accessible for those people who are patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. So please head on over there and support this work. Yeah, go check it out. And as Jacob said, it's as low as $1, just $1. And that helps us out measurably. So so please head on over to, yeah, patreon.com slash no script podcast and check us out over there. Jumping back into the play Bluff. Uh, we like to give you a little bit of context at the start. So I'll just give you a couple dates and such and where it was written. Um, Jeffrey Street w- wrote this and dedicated it to... Lanford Wilson uh, wrote another amazing play called Balm and Gilead, which I'm mm-hmm. sure we will get to. Definitely. <laughs> it might even he be also, on the list for the season. I have forgotten. Yeah, yeah. He also wrote Tally's Folly, which oh, I have been Tally's in. Tally's Folly, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that, that was that was cool to read. In this anthology, there's a real nice foreword about it, and, and that that's great. Um, but uh, Jeffrey Sweet wrote this uh, for a production at the Victory Gardens Theater of Chicago. In, uh, and that production premiered in September 27th of 1999. And then there were two New York productions as well, uh, one in 2000 and one in 2006. So it had some legs for about the next seven years. It was still do- being done in some of the large houses. And uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of most of the context for this one. It's kind of, as Jacob said, it's the best or best Jeffrey Sweet play that I keep forgetting about. That seems to be a bit of a trend in, in the way that it is produced as well, but certainly made the rounds in its time. Yeah, I mean, I think that Bluff exemplifies all the things that is amazing about Jeffrey Sweet. One note before I give you this summary, if you are young actors or actresses, or actors or actresses of any age, really, and you are looking for scenes, perhaps for something even just as simple as ACTF competition, or for an evening of scenes presented at your local theater, or for auditions, I believe that Jeffrey Sweet writes some amazing scenes that can be cut out of the plays and performed in competition or in repertoire or or whatever. I I believe that especially plays like With and Without, um, even Bluff, they have some just incredible scenes. So I really encourage you to to grab this anthology or grab some of his plays just to look for scenes between actors. I think he does a, a really great job in that dialogue. Hopping to Bluff. The play is about, uh, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, there are eight characters total, played by six actors. Uh, Neil and Emily are perhaps the main two characters. They are a young couple. They get together at the start of the play, and throughout the course of the play, their relationship goes through several stages, uh, some rough patches we see. It's really, to some degree, a relationship play about Neil and Emily. The outside influences, the uh, things that cause consternation in their relationship are largely Emily's mother, Georgia, who is a alcoholic. 
uh, an older woman who lost her husband to a random accident when Emily was very young, Emily's father, George's husband. She remarried to a man named Gene who sells dental equipment. And the play, um, the bulk of the play really revolves around Gene and his relationship to Neil and Emily. Gene comes to New York where Neil and Emily live a couple of different times on a couple, or, or maybe it could just all be one time. I'm not quite sure about that. He comes to New York for a convention and the interactions that he has with them and the things that happen uh, make up the really the core substance of the story of the play. Uh, the other four characters, Bonnie is a woman that Neil is with early in the play. Marta is a character, we'll talk about her. She has a relationship with Gene to some degree. And then Loring, uh, we'll talk about him. He is a character very early in the play, rescued by Neil and Emily. And Fred is a salesman friend of uh, Gene's, also a dental supplies salesman. The interesting thing about the and the difference between character numbers and character and actors is that uh, Jeffrey Sweet calls for what he calls a doubling actress to play both Bonnie and Marta, and a doubling actor to play both Loring and Fred. And rather than just being a doubling suggestion, these doubling actor and actress parts are characters of their own. Is that right? So maybe there's really ten characters. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd say that the the I mean the the heading of the individual playing Bonnie and Marta is doubling actress, um, which is its own character all to itself. It gets its own scene. Um, same with the doubling actors. So I'd say those those actors are actually playing three roles um, within within the play. Yeah, I, I agree with that. that. Yeah. And so what makes the play um, so interesting beyond the plot that I described is the theatricality of the piece. Rather than just being a straight play about Neil and Emily and Neil or Emily's stepfather, Gene, and the problems that he causes their relationship, which is a, a substantive play all on its own, uh, Jeffrey Sweet has infused that story with theatricality in that the characters narrate their own actions. That's pretty regular across lots of theater. But he also has the doubling actor and doubling actress. They have a scene where they comment on the roles that they are playing. And really throughout the play, the characters routinely and with ease comment on the fact that they're in a, in a play. In fact, when they're doing flashback scenes, they'll help, they'll coach each other on how to play the roles of their younger selves. They'll talk about how they're setting up scenes. Characters will talk about not wanting to be in this particular scene. Lots mm. of little theatrical elements like that add just a ton of flavor and texture to this story. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 one that definitely kind of catches you off guard with that. You you you're used to characters kind of narrating themselves, right? Uh, starts starts of famous plays uh, do that, um, but but the asides come very quickly between lines, and you catch yourself reading along. It's like, oh wait a minute, they're talking to the audience right now, um, and and that that's something that wouldn't happen if you were watching it. But it was an interesting experience reading it, especially uh, especially the scene. There's a scene about partway through where uh, the doubling actress gets really uh, reflective on on her role in in the in the play and how she wishes she had more to go on. I think is is the main the main argument that she's making against the other characters on stage. Right. Yeah. And, and so the the stage directions for the beginning of the play, the setting directions. Uh, say, and I quote, the play is set in New York and in the meeting place between actors and audience. It begins with a ghost light on stage. Neil enters and turns off the ghost light, takes it off stage. 
super theatrical. Like, like it's super acknowledging of of where it is, what it's doing, and and you can I can picture that. I can picture doing that. Um, part part of the uh, uh, the forward was him talking about the theater they were in that had all this like exposed brick. So you get the idea that this is kind of a, a rough space, and and the ghost light is on, which is always a really raw way to start a play. So. It's it's an exciting way to start the play as well. Well, yeah. I mean, right away, if you read the stage directions at the beginning of the play carefully, you see Jeffrey Sweet setting you up for a play that is not just set in New York, but a play that's set in the context of a play. The play mm-hmm. is really more than just the story of Neil and Emily. It's the story of the story of Neil <laughs> and Emily. The story yeah. of telling the story of Neil and Emily and Jean. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's an alienation technique, or is it something different? Uh, as as a you know, does it does it help us separate ourselves from the the story matter, or is it serving a different purpose? Right. Well, there's there can be little doubt. I think that that the techniques, some of the techniques used by Sweet here are a, a epic theater in nature. Right. I mean having a ghost light on stage exposing the reality <laughs> of the theater is very Brechtian, right? Not just mm-hmm. trapping the audience in a box set where they're supposed to imagine a world, but letting the audience see that this is a piece of theater and what does theater have out? It has a ghost light out on stage. Things like that for sure. In the foreword of the play, at least in this anthology, Jeffrey Sweet also talks about how some of Lanford Wilson's plays that deal with this kind of theatricality and... Um, imaginative space where actors are telling you a story. It's not just the story you're watching, but you're watching the actors tell you the story. That he pulled some of that imagination from some of Lanford Wilson's work, which is why the play's dedicated to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and down to, like, the scene changes as well. Uh, it's included in the stage directions who is changing the scenes. Um, and, and you're not... I don't think you're supposed to have a stage crew for this. He wants the actors to be being a part of showing the theatrical movement. To the whatever piece. degree there's scenery to change, right? Right, I mean, <laughs> right. having not directed the play, and I, I've never seen it performed either, I have a hard time imagining much set. Mm-hmm. Or props even. A couple times he, he specifically says some props are mimed. For instance, telephones um, Yeah, actually, and, and he doesn't even just say it in the stage directions. The characters will say <laughs> it too. <laughs> yeah. We're miming these telephones. Like at one point, one of, my, one of the best moments of theatricality, I think, is when uh, Emily is talking about receiving a phone call. And she says, I, I receive a phone call from somebody. I forget exactly who at that point in the play. She says, it's, it's late at night, so I'm wearing pajamas, which you will please imagine. <laughs> and there's like yep. I don't know I don't know exactly how an actress there's so many levels of how you could play that right because it's like the right. first level of just like can you please imagine this for us which is very common especially in the theater that Jackson and I were trained in that kind of story theater asking the audience to participate but there's also a level of like I'm not going to put on pajamas for you <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a little salty. Yeah. But. <laughs> she's, she's kind of a salty character, really. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it's interesting that that, that has a, a couple different moments, costuming in general. The first scene is this kind of a scene that starts kind of intimate. It's between uh, Neil and Bonnie, and it's it's kind of describing and, their and just trip. a reminder that Bonnie is played by the doubling actress. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, it's kind of describing their trip to the bedroom, which gets interrupted by a fight in the street. 
and they're dressed in like large winter jackets. Well, it says that Neil and Emily are. Uh, Neil and Emily are wearing winter coats and Emily's not in that scene. She's in a scene of her own. And so that's how the play starts is Neil and Bonnie in Neil's apartment. They are, uh, Jackson didn't say it with any pizzazz, so I'm going to try it. They are (laughs) on their way to the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Nice, nice. (laughs) And um, they're narrating what is happening, right? So uh, we don't like to read too many lines, but I'll just give you a sense of what's happening. So Neil says she's wearing a blouse, which she now unbuttons and discards. Bonnie says, your turn, I say. He's wearing a shirt, which he now unbuttons and discards. Neil says, she smiles, and in one smooth motion, she removes blah, blah, blah. You get the point. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're narrating the actions of um, making out and moving to the bedroom. Right. (laughs) But again, narrating. They're telling the audience. So So, it doesn't really give us any sense of this, Jackson. And and we don't often talk about directing a scene too too much, but I am interested. Would you play the scene or just have them talk through it? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because he has to end up without a shirt, doesn't he? (laughs) Right. But it's underneath the coat. Yeah, so when does he take his coat off? And why yeah. does he start in a coat? Yeah. very. I, I'm not sure what I would do. I mean, on the one hand, because so much of the play is in imagination, the fact that he has to be shirtless and without a belt later in the scene, that becomes very important. Um, you could ask the audience to imagine, but that's a lot of, like, that image is so central to what happens in the scene later on, and this scene extends for quite a while. It's one of the longer, full-played scenes of the whole play that you almost have to get him out of his shirt, don't you? I I really like the surprise that all along under the coat... He hasn't had his shirt on. <laughs> like, so, like, you play the whole scene. You were maybe a little bit uncomfortable with the start of this, being like, oh, okay, we're jumping right in. Here we go. And then he goes outside, has a fight, and drags a guy in, and he meets someone new. There's a whole bunch of characters. And then someone says, why don't you take your coat off and stay a while? And he takes off his coat, and he's not wearing his shirt. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I, that's that's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. I like that. So you'd have to work out some way where the the narration of the sexy time is rep, and then some sort of representative action. Um, or I suppose you could just have them stand there and say it. I'm not I'm not totally sure. So they're talking about their sexy time. It, meanwhile, Emily is describing how she inter, interposed with all this. How she is coming from a bar um, with some friends for a birthday celebration for someone else. Uh, she hears, and then Neil and Bonnie hear in their apartment uh, a scream which ends up being a man being beaten. Uh, Neil races outside to save him. Emily goes to try to help him. They get him into their apartment. Uh, They're going to help this guy who's been beaten up. He's the guy named Loring, played by the doubling actor. Bonnie says, well, I'm out of here, I think. (laughs) Clearly nothing else is happening tonight. Um, right. And she leaves. Eventually, Emily and Neil take this guy to the hospital, and so begins the long story of their relationship. That is how they meet and how they begin together. Yeah. Yep. And it, and it introduces us – I think much of this play introduces us to Emily. Um uh, we don't we don't get a whole lot of Neil's backstory, but we get a whole we find out a lot about Emily from what we where we stand at the beginning of the play to where we stand at the end. I feel like she is the most fleshed out character of this play. 
Um, yeah, her and Jean, actually. I mean, I think yeah, between true. the two of them, much of the uh, work is done on character between the two of them. I actually sometimes feel like Neil is a little bit flat of a character in a comparison to, yeah, a little everyman, <laughs> a little good guy, you know, just like yeah. good boyfriend character. I am real bad about that. I like to write the good boyfriend when I write <laughs> scenes, maybe just imagining myself better than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> and Neil Neil has a little bit of that in him, although I, I love some of the character details that he is, uh, Sweet has written in, like the fact that Neil is a lawyer and cannot stand lawyer jokes. Right. And that comes up all the time. Little little tidbits like that help to pepper him a little bit with some flavor. It's so good that like both he and Gene hate their occupation jokes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like the two represent – Gene uh, plays a dentist or maybe a, more a appropriately a dental salesman. D- dental gear. Um, yeah. Whether he was ever a dentist or not, yeah. I'm not totally clear on. Yeah. Whatever he is right now ne- – whatever he was right now, he is selling – oh, what's the word? It's like dental ac- – Acrylic burrs maybe? Is acrylic that burrs. That's what like it is. That. He Something doesn't obscure. bother to define it for anyone either, so – no, in like, fact, is he, he says, "Quick, what's an acrylic burr?" And then never gives the answer. Just like <laughs> moves right on. <laughs> yeah, it is. I just look it up. Acrylic burrs. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, but both of them are really insensitive about their, or really sensitive about their occupation and jokes made about them. Yeah, and and you know they both have an occupation in which there is a lot of stereotyping, right? Dentists uh, and lawyers, and and honestly, there's a, there's a quite a bit of dialogue in there about uh, how unfair the stereotype, especially to dentists, but even a little bit to lawyers, is as well. Mm-hmm. Which makes for really really uh, kind of weird scenes where where the subtext we've we've talked a lot about subtext recently. We must be just reading really great playwrights or something. Whoa. But the subtext. <laughs> the subtext is something completely different in most of the scenes, but they're talking about this other stuff. And for a long time in some instances. Well, Jeffrey but- Sweet is so good at this. He's so good at getting his characters to discuss things that aren't just the main conflict or the main plot. Uh, lots of playwrights, especially younger playwrights, as you read better and better plays, you see less and less of this, but lots of young playwrights, including myself, get caught up in having our characters want to deal with the main issue at hand all the time. Mm-hmm. And Sweet is good at imagining the other things characters are interested in and getting right. them talking about that in a way that still reflects back on what we're learning about each individual character, about the conflict at hand, about the trajectory that we're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, they take like they take something mundane and then it always finds its way back to the kind of core struggle as most of us do. Like whenever we start talking about something, eventually it ties to something that we believe strongly in. But we're not always talking about the thing that we believe strongly in. But that's that's hard to do as a playwright because you're here to explain the issues uh, of your characters. And I think that this play does a great job at, at staging moments where that can happen in restaurants, in unforeseen circumstances. They cre- it creates drama around something else in which mostly the history between Gene and Emily gets sussed out and brought into the open. Yeah, for all the work that uh, Jeffrey Sweet does starting the play by giving us a sense of Neil and Emily as a couple, how they began, where they're headed, their individual personalities, I actually agree that the core conflict comes down to a conflict between Gene and Emily and then 
what we follow a little bit is how the conflict between Gene and Emily has repercussions for the relationship of Emily and Neil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you need you need that backstory between Neil and Emily for it to make sense for it to land um, for for yeah. the ultimate consequences of what happens to land we have to have some investment some emotional investment i think in the relationship as it's going which i guess is not very epic theater-esque <laughs> right right <laughs> that's true but but i mean like the 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 stuff with with emily and her apartment for instance that's that i feel like is the significant beat of the first mm, third of the play is that when they decide to move in, uh, she wants it to be in her apartment, um, which is which is really indicative of her character in general. Um, she is she's a a very uh, my way or the highway sort of person and, and wants to have control of the situation. Yeah, he, um, here's a great example of that. So, like we've said, the the, the long long first scene again. I, I would probably feel safe calling it the longest extended scene of the play where each action follows each action in the same time frame is the rescue of the guy from the street, Neil and Emily meeting and taking this guy to the hospital. So they have a couple of different conversations throughout this night. One of them is that Bonnie, the person who Neil was hooking up with, has left. And so now it's just Neil and Emily alone. So they start talking. They realize they like each other. They're in the hospital now. Um, they're starting to ask questions and review. They're flirting. They're talking about it. Eventually, they decide they're going to go on a date. And uh, Emily has uncovered from Neil that Bonnie was just a one-night stand. Nothing was going to happen. And she says, eventually, when Neil asks Emily on a date, she says, I would like to make something clear. I am not a Bonnie. Right, she's she sets it up right away. I'm uh, I'm interested in something different than a one right. night stand, and this is how it's going to go. If you want to be with me, you have to be interested in something different than a one night stand. Right, which is interesting for her. It's interesting <laughs> yeah. that she's the one that takes that stand because Emily has got commitment issues. Yeah, mm-hmm. to the core. <laughs> yeah, down to just even uh, voicing what the relationship is. Um, she she's not a fan of that. She's she enjoys the physicalization of of the of what the relationship is. But when when they begin hovering nearer defining things, all the all the defenses begin going up, and uh, she doesn't want to. I think ultimately, what more of her story reveals is she doesn't want to give that control to someone else to let someone else have that power over her um i think i think again i think you're right to us to us to uh define neil as this person who kind of goes along with it <laughs> um and 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 wants that and and thus kind of is a little bit doe-eyed in most of these scenes <laughs> where right neil is just, not like, so <laughs> my way or the highway he's kind of willing yeah. to put up with some crap um, because I guess because of how he feels about her. Well, one good example of this is, uh, so they, they get together, they go on this date. We don't actually see the date. We, we always see is her agree to the date. She says, I'm not a Bonnie. And he says something like, okay, I'm okay with that. And then he has a really lovely monologue. I think a really, really cool and interesting monologue that I'd love to see played and see how it connects with an audience. Again, one of the things that Jeffrey Sweet is good at is letting his characters say things that are seem that really are at their core fairly profound, but say them in a way that characters are discovering them. So Neil has a monologue about the differences between like when you're driving and you cross a 
a border between countries and how clear it is when you cross into somewhere new, but how gray it is when you're moving into a new stage of a relationship with a person, how there aren't so many clear markers. And so the new stage they're moving into is they've decided to move in together. So we skip all of the early part of their relationship using this narrative device that Sweet has built in, which works, I think. We've had such an extended scene of watching the two of them and how affectionate they are about each other, even when they first meet, that I think it's okay we miss the first date, the first three dates, the first months of their relationship, and skip to the part when they're going to move in together. So they, they've decided to move in. They talk. They have a whole conversation about moving in together. One of the key things is that Emily says, you have to move into my apartment. And Neil right. says, but if I move into your apartment, you're always going to say it's your apartment. And she says, what's the problem with that? It goes on. <laughs> they decide to move in together. And eventually, once they do... Um, Neil says, isn't it enough for you to know I'm nuts about you? And Emily, the stage direction says, wincing, says, can we just can we just be together and not say a lot of this stuff? <laughs> and yep. shockingly, Neil puts up only a little bit of a fight in right. response to that. <laughs> I just couldn't imagine somebody in our relationship being like, also, can you just not say how much you like me? Let's just not talk about how affectionate we really are about each other. Let's just not talk about it. It's just be fine. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> Which in, in some ways is what this, I mean, what we've already talked about with the con, the subtext going on is, is, is a bunch of people who aren't wanting to talk about all the subtext that happened with them, especially, especially, and I think we should maybe jump to this because we've, we've done a little bit of building up, but especially Gene and uh, Emily, when they are in conflict, when they are fighting, um, and Jean to Neil as well, they rarely are saying what they actually want to say. Instead, they're like talking around with some complicated analogy of of diff- different situations than than what is actually present in front of them. Yeah, and and the, the characters comment on that as well. They'll routinely get to the point and say, you're just, you're just finding a way to say what you really want to say, but you're not really saying it. And that's yeah. kind of baloney, you know? I mean, and, and again, I, I love to just rave about Jeffrey Sweet, but one of the things he's really good at is letting his characters uh, understand that other characters are using tactics against them. Right, I mean, you see, tactics are such a core piece of of plays. Watching characters use tools to get their goals, and Sweet has allows his characters to get this level where they can point out the tools that are being used against them. Yeah, and bring the fact that a character is using a tool to the light and make that the new subject of conversation. Yeah, that's that. That is a rare thing that because you know occasionally we get to hear and see that the characters understand the subtext. So often when you read the play, you're like, just, just, just be okay with each other. Just Just say say, it. Just just say say it. it. (laughs) (laughs) But like, but like the scene. There's a there's this great long story that Gene tells about when they were on a cruise and this woman that the ship's crew end up stealing onto the ship or like kidnapping (laughs) unintentionally kidnapping onto the ship um but at the end of it um he says something like 
uh, Gene Gene says something like he he actually enjoys the story. He's just not wanting to to you know take my side against you. And there's like an aside where Neil says, "Yeah, I actually did enjoy the story." <laughs> yeah, it's like because Emily doesn't find the story funny, Neil pretends not to, and then yeah. Gene and Neil turn to the audience, and Gene's like, "He really did find it funny. He just wants to look good in front of his girlfriend." And Neil's like, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> and so that's an instance where the the actor or the the person telling the story turns to the audience and says i recognize what has just been what has just happened in the subtext but that but jefferson also has the characters in scene recognize the tactics that are being used against him like uh emily and neil are having a fight about uh, emily's mother's alcoholism and neil tells this story about his aunt who had some issues and this terrible you know this terrible thing he did when he was young and he tried to confront her about the issues as a kid and how naive he was and emily says oh what and you're just you're you're saying that this that situation is the same as this that my mother is the same as your aunt and i should never say anything about it and neil says no no, I wasn't saying that at all. I wasn't making any type of specific point. And Emily just calls him on it. You know, she just yeah. says this, you're using this tool against me. You told this story for a reason. You were making a point. Right. We all tell stories within a certain context or something like that. And, and you wanted to, it to be received in a certain way. So don't pretend like you just happen to come up with the story that you want to say. It's use, use instead of actually telling me what you want to say. Right, yeah. So, Jackson, help help the audience understand here, what really does the conflict between Gene and Emily boil down to? We haven't really talked much about Gene. Let's bring him in and talk about why there's some consternation between he and Emily. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated relationship. So, uh, as we mentioned before, Emily's father died um, in the past, and, and it seems to be kind of a sudden thing, unexpected, an accident. Um, and, uh, as a result, her mother, whose name is Georgia in the play, um, uh, receded into alcoholism and was, was, uh, kind of distant as a parent, but she eventually met Jean and Jean kind of showed up on the scene sometime when she was quite young. I think nine is the earliest age mentioned, um, uh, for, for Emily during, during the play. Yeah. And that um, seems to be at least the indication of when she and Jean met. When yeah. Emily was nine. So that's when Jean, who would become her stepfather, enters the picture. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be a, a relationship that is just fraught as that relationship tends to be. There's some uh, 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 grievances, specific grievances that she brings up. For instance, uh, Jean ends up trying to restrict some of the money that was set aside from her father for her to go to college and control some of that. Um, the, the, their, their relationship in general is just strained over a couple of times that she mentions him trying to quote unquote, lay down the law. And, um, that, that is a pretty, that's a pretty understandable one in terms of what the relationship is. That's the relationship with step parents to stepchildren. Um, but the one that, that, serves, I think, as the catalyst, at least within the context of the story is, or of this play, is the story of when she was in college and she wanted to continue with philosophy. And uh, he was saying that he was going to cut off the money that was hers from her father to do so. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe at least stop writing her checks to help her live. 
Like, uh, I'm, I'm not totally sure if he even had the right to restrict the money from her father or if it's more about, like, cost of living money that she needed to continue in New York. In either case, he says, if you're going to continue with philosophy, I'm going to cut off that money. And she says, oh, it's fine. I'll go make my own money. And what she does in this, I, I love this story and how she just kind of throws everything back in his face. What she does is she becomes a stripper at a at a local bar, but that's not really the goal. She becomes a stripper only for a short time, long enough for her to make sure her mother hears that she's a stripper <laughs> in order to make money because Jean right. cut off her money. And her mother, who's at this point now married to Jean, says, you better start writing her checks. She's a stripper. Yeah. <laughs> and so magically the checks start coming again. I mean, and Emily tells this story to Neil uh, and as this way to sort of describe how she beat Jean in this particular mm-hmm. instance in their history, and what a what a great story! Oh yeah, and and just beautiful tactics, <laughs> yeah, right, like so well explained. Um, she she described Neil Neil asks her why didn't you just try to bluff and like tell him that you would do that and that would bluff, get him bluff. Hey, bluff. everybody. Hey, everybody. Bluff. <laughs> hey, the title of the play. We found uh, it. <laughs> um, and, and why didn't you just like say that you would, which would be enough to get him to give you the money again? Um, and she describes it really well is that that either way that turns out he's still the one in power in the situation. Yeah, he still wins because yeah. if she says, I'm going to do this and he calls her bluff and says, okay, do it. Then she only has two options. Either don't do it and look like she was just bluffing and she's a chicken or do it. And now she seems like she's only doing it because he dared her. So right. as soon as she realized what she had to do, she realized that she couldn't just tell Jean, she couldn't threaten to do it. She just had to do it. And then let the let the story play out from there. I mean, that's a brilliant use of tactics, and it's also terrible. Yeah, just <laughs> outright <Real> manipulative, <laughs> and it's just. I mean, the story serves so much to highlight character, right? Sometimes people talk about dialogue in plays, and they say that if, I don't know if I agree with this totally, but if they, some people say that effective dialogue in play either has to advance the plot or reveal character. This one doesn't advance – this story, this ingenious story that's really central to the story of the script doesn't advance the plot much. It's really about something that happened a while ago, but it reveals so much character. Yeah, I mean if you didn't know who Emily was before that, you do now. Yeah. And I'm shocked Neil doesn't go running for the door. Not out of some stupid, like, moral sense of like, oh, she was a stripper. I can't be with her. I mean that that would be equally terrible. But out of like – she is manipulative. She's out to win. <laughs> mm-hmm. She, I mean, look at what she's willing to do in her relationships to beat someone. Right. Yeah, which which kind of went down in the scene prior as well, right? Like, they just came from the scene where uh, Jean and Neil were talking about... Uh, <laughs> Jean was trying to get Neil to back off, basically, and try to tell him in a couple of different ways to... That they weren't good for each other, that Emily and Neil were not good well, for each yeah, other. Well, yeah, and it really what it's about, and in, in, in another disturbing conversation, Jean and Neil, they've, re- they've come to a bar early where they're going to meet Emily. Emily hasn't shown up yet. And Neil says, don't marry Emily. She's got all this anger. She's a really angry person. You're going to end up hurt. You shouldn't marry Emily. His own stepdaughter. Yeah. <laughs> warning him not to marry her. And he has some good points, too. Like, right, look right. at how she talks about me. 
Look at how this terrible situation she's put me in where I have to somehow be this perfect stepfather because her father who died before he could ever reveal that he wasn't perfect is now perfectly cemented in her brain. Look at all this has happened. <laughs> Listen, has she ever talked about her boyfriends? Does she ever talk about them in a positive way? No. Well, maybe it's just because they were all jerks or maybe it's because she's really angry. So he he's providing her with or him. He's talking to Neil with just it makes me real that scene makes me really uncomfortable oh yeah absolutely (laughs) and then it's layered on with uh him being this kind of appeaser for clients um someone comes up and is like basically just says the girl that you ordered to go with this client is sick and can't do it and so he has him he gives him a number and he gives him a, a number for another woman to call to send to this Dr. Mateo is the guy and 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 so within this scene we see Gene doing lots of uncomfortable things manipulating right I manipulating mean, we, we, this is before we learn about how manipulative Emily can be we learn in this scene how manipulative Gene is yeah. and the way yep. that he's you know he just met with Neil beforehand and is giving him just uh, un inappropriate levels of personal details, warning, conversation about the girl that Neil's dating and is his stepdaughter. I mean, really stepping over the bounds of what yeah. uh, is really his role in this situation. Yep. But so 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 Neil tries to step up to the level of these two in terms of <laughs> manipulating or or trying to bring one of them down and he tries to give the news to Emily that Jean is in fact this this person, this this uh, uh, agent for enjoyment for the clients of his, and he just gets completely swept around. Gene uh, uh, talks about, starts to reveal more of Emily's backstory than Emily is comfortable with, and they basically just agree to bury the flag, or uh, the, or I'm sorry, they agree to surrender and and just move on past it in this really kind of weird shake hands agreement, and then they move on to the rest of the night. And that moment where they both are in a position of power and just both say, nope, we're done for now, Well, yeah, is what cues it, the later on it, conversation. That, that scene is so good at watching each character do uh, work their magic, right? So Emily shows up. Neil is pissed at Gene for his overstepping of bounds and knows that Gene has this thing about this woman that he's hired. And so Emily shows up and Neil tries to bring it up, like you say, to mention to Emily, oh, look at what, as a way to stab back at Gene. Gene pretty quickly shuts that down with a conversation about how he's a salesman and how taking care of clients is part of his job. Oh, and by the way, just to just if anybody's thinking about judging me, by the way, this many years ago, Emily might have been the person that I called to help handle one of my clients. And Emily immediately goes, let's not talk about this. Shake hands. Yep. Okay, we're not talking about it. (laughs) <laughs> and you see all of Neil's power get pulled away and all of right. Emily's power get pulled away at the same time. Gene masterfully wipes the playing field, says all this stuff mm-hmm. you think you have over me. No, you don't anymore. Right. And it's really, it's a good example of, like you said, watching Neil try to play at the level that Gene and Emily play at and (laughs) failing. And one of the reasons why he fails is that he doesn't hold the right cards in that scenario. He has a low context relationship with Gene and a medium context relationship with Emily, but Emily and Gene have a high context relationship. So they're going to be able to be more aligned than he and Emily or he and against Gene are in that scene. And so... Neil fails because he doesn't have the right tools. And that's one of the things that Emily never lets herself 
She never puts herself in situations where she's not going to have all the cards, right? right? When they decide to move in together, she insists that Neil moves into her apartment. She's collecting the cards to play masterfully at different points in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also just really bad at playing the cards. Oh, so bad. Like his examples are like full paragraph stammering bad allegories for what's happening. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, 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 and so, yeah. And that might be one of the reasons why Gene and Emily don't get along. It's never really expressly made clear what the tension between them is. Gene has some ideas, mostly about how he's this uh, innocent, hardworking, good guy who's just trying to do his best and how both Georgia and Emily have unreasonably high expectations for him because they lost this important man in their lives and he's just doing the best he can. So, you know, how much of that you can believe is kind of baloney. Right, right. (laughs) But one of the reasons why Gene and Emily might have so much disagreement between them is that when they come together, when they meet... They neither of them have all the cards anymore. Right. Well, they both came up against an alpha, basically. Right, yes. And neither of them will let let the high ground go, but they have to live together somehow on the high ground. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. You get the sense that these are two people who have circled around each other for so long that they know when the fight is happening and when it's time to just back away and and maintain the the, the power structure as is but not push too hard on it. Right. And and you see this happen all the time. And the way that Emily works Neil is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why you would include a character like Neil in this script, rather than just having it be conflict between Emily and Jean, is you get to see how well Emily plays the game when she's working against someone who's so much worse than her at it. Right. versus how how much of a back-and-forth struggle it is when she's playing against somebody like Gene, mm-hmm. who is, who's yeah, good which, at it. Yeah, which which winds up happening because after the truce is called, Gene actually goes too far or is caught in something too far. Well, after um, the truce is, is called, we do learn, Emily does end up telling Neil what happened. Um, yes, and it's that interesting. Old she doesn't even push back really when he asks about what happened. She seems seems to pretty quickly open up and tell him, which I think is a little clue into this idea that she doesn't really care that he knows she was a stripper and she's not she's not ashamed of it, but she doesn't want Gene to be able to use it as a tool against her. So once right. he's out of the picture, she's willing to spill the beans on whatever, and actually she she ends up using it sort of to her benefit. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So once once the story can become a tool she can wield, she's willing to share it whenever. Yeah. And I mean, who wouldn't not want your stepdad to reveal that information to your boyfriend? But I think it it initial it it it, uh, it adds on to the type of character that Emily is that she wants to control the flow of information so much more than ever letting it out. And she's willing to shut down even a claim against her stepfather that he is orchestrating women to hang out with clients to to accomplish that. Right. She realizes that she has to call a truce in the combat with Jean so that she can circle around and try again later. And what does she try again later? She tells this story about her being a stripper when she was young. And the moral of the story is, look, I was young back then. When you're young, you can do dumb stuff and you can grow up and be a better person. But once you reach a certain age, you can't do that anymore. And you suddenly become responsible for the bad decisions you're making. And who is that pointed at? Gene's not in the scene, but it's a subtextual dig at Gene. It's a way to align Neil with her. 
to get Absolutely. Neil to say he's grown up now. The bad decisions he's making are his own. So that metaphor mm-hmm. he was trying to make way back at dinner, that doesn't apply. Yeah. But notably, yep. <laughs> she doesn't make that argument until Gene's out of the room and he can't counterpunch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She gets Neil like firmly in her corner, which plays into the next scene, right? Like, finally something big enough happens that she's willing to fight Gene on it, right? Like, Gene gets caught, uh, (laughs) he gets caught by the husband of the woman that he was trying to get lucky with, um, who is a cop, and just, who straight up, straight up arrests him. Yeah, so this is the same night, so they, they, he and Neil meet for this drink before he and Neil and Emily are gonna go out to dinner, then they all go out to dinner, and in a lovely, just a, just a, beautiful narrative device, Gene says something like, we just skipped the dinner because we all got along, and who wants to see a scene about everybody getting along? So we're skipping to later on that night. (laughs) That's not why you came to hear hear this tonight. I mean, that's another one of those moments where he just, uh, Sweet just pulls back the curtain and, and reveals the the reason why he made the playwriting decisions he makes yeah. through a character. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. Yep. <laughs> so then the then the scene between Emily and Neil where she tells him the story occurs. And then later that night, Emily says, I'm in pajamas. You'll imagine those. You remember that from earlier. And this is the call she gets from Gene. And, and Gene says what? Like you were saying. Well, Gene says he's he's in, he's in prison. Um <laughs> <laughs> and he needs uh, Neil to come and, and get him out, basically. He knows Neil's Neil a lawyer, is a lawyer. Yeah. Yep. And so he needs him to come and, and get him out. And he tells this this story of how he and Marta tell this story in another kind of weird uh, uh, theatrical scene where they kind of have an aside. And they're. it's weird because Gene is on the phone talking to Neil, right? That's how we uh, ostensibly are receiving this information. But it switches to... Gene and Marta talking about what happened to the audience. Well, they actually um, play out the scene. He So Gene yeah. is describing what happens, and then Marta comes in, and he and Marta play out the scene of where they were meeting in a combination of re- realistic dialogue and asides to the audience or to Neil and Emily about what's going on. Um, at, at one point, Gene says, Neil, can you play the – can you bring us the drinks? Can you play the waiter? <laughs> Yeah, could you? Yeah, <laughs> that's just so great. And Neil says, "You mimed the telephones. Why can't you mime the drinks?" And she says, "It'll make it more realistic. Just bring It'll us the drinks." <laughs> yep. Which is which is the other great scene where it's the the kind of uber aware actress or the doubling actress has the scene. She starts launching into like backstory on this woman that he's trying to get with, and. Right, because her her husband, the story is her husband, the police officer, comes home and catches them. And so she she tries to interrupt and say, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that my husband's this great cop and that I'm just out cheating on him every night. No, he's got some issues. He won't go to marriage counseling with me. He's not not willing to try to meet me halfway. And Gene basically says, what are you doing? This is not a play about Marta. We don't care. And she goes on this tangent about how an actress prepares a whole life around her characters and imagines right. all these details. Like, what are some things that she imagines about Marta? Well, she she imagines, uh, what is it all? It's, uh, she has, yeah, she says that there's some really great things that she wants to, that are worth knowing. She saves someone's life and that, that life is out there in the world somewhere and owes Marta that. Um, she talks about uh, only just because of her quick thinking for, for taking classes at the Red Cross that this came about. So yeah, she has this whole thing fleshed out. Again, pulling really back the curtain share. on how an actor prepares. 
Jeffrey yeah. Sweet gives yep. this actress this opportunity to say, even when you're playing small parts, you want to imagine full lives for your characters so you can play real human beings. And Marta describes some of that. And then the doubling actor comes out <laughs> playing an actor and says, and it actually, this is what it says. The doubling actor, Christine, and then in, in parentheses, in stage direction, or whatever the real name of the actress is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the doubling actor says, it's not appropriate for you to do this. We're, we're doing a play. What are you doing? Stop that. And she goes on this tangent about how she all, all she's playing is these, you know, these one-night stand women. She played Bonnie, who was a one-night stand with Neil at the beginning of the play. She's playing Marta, who's a one-night stand with him now. And how the doubling actor, he gets to play this really sensitive, injured gay man. And he gets to play the smutty businessman. And he gets all this range, but I'm just playing all these, you know, crazy one night stand women and that's not fair right you could have let, at least let me take a stab at the mom yeah that would have that would have saved saved a salary you even have to cast the mother i could play her too yeah <laughs> it's uh in the in the foreword jeffrey sweet calls that scene the revolt of the doubling actress yes <laughs> i love it how do you think that play or that scene plays do you think do you think that there is a belief in the audience that this is actually breaking at any point? Or do you think that it, it, it should maintain a veneer of, don't worry, this is still the play? I think it has to maintain a veneer of, uh, okay, this is still the play. And that's why so many times throughout the play there are asides that have nothing to do with the action or asides where people comment on the reality of the of the storytelling, you know, the fact that this is a play. They ask each other to set up scenes. They ask each other to play different parts. I think in doing that, really, to my mind, so much of Jeffrey Sweet doing that is building us for this moment so that the audience is prepared to experience this as another feature of the storytelling and not feel so awkward or, uh, you know, there's a moment where you don't, you don't, you don't want to be taken out of the experience right. of the play to wonder, is this really happening? How should I feel about this? I think he wants you to experience it as just another layer of the story. Right. Yeah. A kind of unique feature of this play itself. Not even the, the story of Emily. And it's, it's not the story of Emily. It's the and story of and... the story of Emily exactly. and Neil. It's the story of telling the story. And that's yeah. really what the yeah. play is, right? It's not just the story of Emily and Neil and Jean. It's the story of this company of people telling <laughs> that story. Exactly. Yeah, you get to hang out in a theater with these folks for yeah, a while. Yeah, I mean, while, like a play and... like Noise is Off is sort of that way. It's a story about a company of people telling the story. But Noise is Off right. doesn't involve the audience in the same way. Noise is Off is really a play about putting on a play. This is yeah. a play about doing this play right now with you audience sitting right there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, including you in on it and all, and all the facets of of the art form as well. Yes, uh, yes. So uh, once we get the doubling actress revolt, uh, we go back to the scene and uh, basically Emily and Jean have a standoff in what becomes the climax of the play. Yeah, I think so. And what's yeah. the standoff about? What happens? Well, uh, he, he calls <laughs> he calls her bluff, right? So she discovers that he uh, was was uh, cheating on her mother, and she says, "I'm going to tell her." Essentially, I mean, this is this is all layered over in a very slow build, which is beautiful. But I'm shortening for the benefit of our time frame. Um, she says, "I'm going to tell her," and he says, "Yeah, okay, go for it. You have the power to do that." And she kind of says again. I'm going to tell her. And that starts to bring about his very manipulative line of reasoning, which is, 
Think about what happens when you tell her. It's interesting, and one of the reasons why her bringing up the story where she beat him with the stripper tactic, I think it's so important, is it lets us understand why Emily loses this scene. Mm, Because what happens is, different than in the stripper scene where she says, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to threaten to do it. I just do it and then let him deal with the consequences. In this scene, she messes that tactic up and she threatens something. And as Uh soon as she threatens something, Gene has the ability to call her bluff and he does. And he says, okay, if you call her, you know your mother. She's an alcoholic. If you call her, she'll throw me out. Of course she will. And I'll have to give her half my stuff. That'll be bad for me. I'll have to move into some crappy studio apartment. I will definitely be punished. But guess what will happen? Your mother will fall off the deep end. I'm taking care of her. When she's drunk, when she's passed out, when she needs her stomach pumped, I'm the one driving her to the hospital. I'm the one keeping her from killing herself. So if you call her and she boots me out, somebody else is going to have to do that. And what's interesting is he doesn't even make it a threat about your mother's going to die. That's sort of part of it. Right. But really the threat is But not really, what? yeah. What's the threat? Well, the threat is that you will have to take care of her. <sighs> How dastardly is that? Just, ugh. It's such Just, an evil, brilliant tactic to play on her selfishness. Not yeah, her selflessness. And- not to play on the idea that you're going to kill your mother, but to play on the selfishness to say, if you do this... Your life is ruined. You right. will have to go and take care of her. You're the only other one. You're going to mm-hmm. have to move to L.A. and take care of your mother. And you don't actually want to do it, do you? And ya? that's the bluff. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's evil. It makes you squirm. But yep. ultimately, he wins. Mm-hmm. And in a, you know, you watch Emily succeed in the story she tells about the stripper tactic. And then you watch her not carry that lesson into the scene and watch her just get <laughs> ripped apart. Yeah. She doesn't have yeah. a chance. It, yeah. <laughs> Basically at the point that he says, or what? There's there's a, there's a moment where she says, you're going to shape up or whatever. Uh, or no, I'm, uh, you can't do this again. And he says, or what? And then, then she's led into the the uh, or I'll call or 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 I will call her. And from there on, it's oof, yeah, he wins. It's, and it's there's gone. some brilliant, brilliant writing in this scene. Yeah, best scene mm-hmm. of the play by far. To watch her and Emily and Neil try to navigate this tense standoff is just yeah. brilliant. And there's some awesome monologues too, where Gene talks about how, you know, she's not going to get better than this. And I'm not either. We're at an age where it doesn't get better. We don't have the option to just move on and try something else. We're old. We are what we are. All we're doing is maintaining. Mm-hmm. And there's some just some heartbreaking, beautiful writing about this. There's some great theatricality where Emily calls in an imaginary Georgia who was you know, played by the actress who plays Georgia, to come yeah. in and kind of view and comment on the scene. And eventually the actress who plays Georgia says, I don't want to see this anymore. And Jean says to Emily, well, it's Emily's choice. Is she going to see this anymore or not? And Emily, and that is the point where Emily concedes. It's not, she like, it's not like a, a realistic theater moment where she like sets down the phone or she nods or something to, to, um, to give away power. It's the theatricality that the winning exists in. She releases the actress playing Georgia to leave the scene. Yeah, which, I mean, it, it adds another layer of, you you almost enter a scene in her mind of 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 how she sees it playing out and she hears her mother say to her i don't want to know this 
don't tell me this. And and that 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 is like kind of a chilling moment of I mean, wh- however you choose to parse it, is it actually her mother saying I don't want to know this and thus giving her permission to step back, or is it her mind, you know, justifying this choice that is coming down towards her? And either way, it's a cool, compelling way to do that. It's absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. The play ends, and it, Jackson, see if you agree with me on this. Please disagree if you do. Let's just leave what happens to Neil and Emily up to the audience to discover. Cool. I, I, we don't. We haven't done that in a long time, just leaving a piece of the plot for you all who haven't read the play to go find for yourself. But I have such yeah. affection for this play that I really, really want all of you to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you haven't read it, that. you're missing what I think is just a treasure. Just a mm-hmm. brilliant treasure. And if you're a director looking for a piece, look at this piece. There's roles for middle-aged people and deep, good roles for women and beautiful tactics, beautiful theatricality. I love it. Do it, please. Yeah, I absolutely agree. If And, and if, if we serve a, in our own tiny little way of giving Jeffrey Sweet some more attention, it'll be work well done. So... Go find the ending somewhere. Yeah, so the ending <laughs> is, is great... between Neil and Emily. We'll give that away. That Jean leaves, Emily loses. She says, fine, yep. I won't tell her. Uh, Jean leaves, and the rest of the play is the fallout of what occurs between Neil and Emily. Because of this thing with Jean, how does that affect Neil and Emily's relationship? I hope you'll check it out. I, I It's a brilliant end to an incredibly brilliant play. Uh, I, I I just love this play. Like I said, it's my one of my favorite plays that I forget about. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I, I had a lot of fun reading it. I can give you all a pro tip. If you do want to go out and buy it, buy the anthology that we mentioned. It's The Value of Names and Other Plays by Jeffrey Sweet. The The play itself, uh, Bluff, is like $60 when I found it on Amazon to just buy the one. And the anthology is so much less than that. So check out the anthology and you'll get a bunch of you'll Jeffrey Sweet You'll get a bunch plays. of really, really great plays. I cannot speak highly enough about The Value of Names with and without and Porch. Porch is um, the cheesiest of the three. Sorry, Mr. Sweet. Um, but I love Porch. I directed it last summer or maybe even two summers ago now here in town on an old historic porch in one of the historic neighborhoods of Fayetteville. Yeah. Uh, it was really, really cool. One of my dreams to direct Porch on an actual porch. It was an awesome production. Uh, so obviously I love Porch. And the value of names and with and without are both on a list of mine. That I, yeah. I just yeah. love those plays. And Bluff is too. Uh, Bluff is probably my favorite play in the anthology, maybe besides American Enterprise, which is so different that I don't even consider it in the same category. <laughs> right. They cannot exist together. <laughs> and yet they do in this anthology. It's so, a brilliant anthology. Yeah. So, so when you pick it up and when you read it or when you're in this play or when you've interacted with this play and you want to talk about it with someone – Talk about it with us. Go find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We'd love to continue this conversation with you. Our username on all of those are at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to keep talking about this play with you. So if if you have read the play and need someone who kind of shares that experience with you, we're around here for that. Find us on all the social medias slash emails, and we'd love to keep talking. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, 
Besides becoming a patron, the next best thing you can do for us is share this or other episodes on your social media. Tell people about No Script. If you like scripts, which we think you do because you're here, chances are you know people who like scripts and you know people who'd like to be part of this conversation. So please tell people about the podcast, share it on your social media. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We are hosted all of those places. You can also find uh, the, the link to the new episode is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram every Monday when we release. Yeah. So until next week when we're releasing another episode about a conversation of some play that we'll be talking about, another I'm sure. Another play. Another play. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. See ya. See ya.